0: Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space podcast. I am your host, Mark Shapiro. First off, I'd like to thank our sponsor of this episode, Lori Bedke and Creighton University. Creighton University believes in equipping physicians for success in the exam room, the operating room, and the boardroom. If you want to increase your business acumen, deepen your leadership knowledge, and earn your seat at the table, Creighton's healthcare executive education is for you. Specifically tailored to busy physicians, their hybrid programs blend the richness of on-campus residencies with the flexibility of online learning. You can earn a Creighton University Executive MBA degree in 18 months or complete the non-degree Executive Fellowship in six months. You can visit www.creighton.edu backslash C-H-E-E to learn more. My guest in this episode of Explore the Space podcast is LaShira Nolan. LaShira, she goes by Lash, is a rising second-year medical student at Harvard Medical School, and she is the class president for the class of 2023 at Harvard. She comes on the show today for a conversation around what she... Is seeing what she is experiencing in the twenty three. The wake of the protests around the United States and in the growing awareness of the need for change, for activation, for movement against systemic racism in the United States. You can follow Lash on Twitter at Lash Nolan, and you can also check out her website at LashiraNolan.com. There are links for both of these in the show notes. You can find Explore the Space at www.explorethespaceshow.com. You can find me on Twitter at ETS Show, Instagram at Explore the Space Show, and you can email me mark at explorethespaceshow.com. In these extraordinary days, having Lash come on the show to speak with us was very special. So, without further ado, Lash Nolan. Lash, welcome to Explore the Space. Thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Yeah. Thank you for having me, Mark. I'm happy to be here.
0: It does feel like as you and I are speaking right now, and we've been in contact over the past couple of days, it does feel like we are in the midst of history and it feels huge. It feels important. And I just kind of want to start from a place of asking you of what are you seeing? What are, what are you feeling as we're moving through these first days of June 2020?
1: Yeah, I think that this year has been extremely challenging. I think between COVID-19 and the disparities that COVID-19 has exposed in our country and folks have been in quarantine for so long. And then on top of that, you have these unjust murders that we've been seeing. And I think that right now there's this I feel like there's this genuine reckoning with the fact that there's this connection between all of these events and that is systemic racism and particularly anti-blackness as it relates to to racism and I think that we're finally starting to have real conversations about the role of the police in our communities and what this means in academic medicine. And we're shifting away from just conversations about implicit bias and really talking about how all of these things that are happening are related to historical issues that have been ingrained in our country in the very fabric of, of who we are as America. And it's hurtful, I think, especially being a student trying to focus on school and, and also doing the advocacy work at the same time has been challenging, but I, I feel hopeful in a way that I think that America is raw right now. And that hasn't been the case in the past.
0: When you speak about America feeling raw, that choice of word resonates with me. I think it it's the right thing. That rawness, that sense of pain, irritation, inflammation, wound, right? All of the synonyms sort of come out as I'm thinking through that word after you said it in this place. Does it continue? How do we move that along? Because, right, we know as you're going to continue to learn in medical school and I continue to learn every day, we learn the processes of how the body sustains an injury and how the body then begins to heal from injury. Are we even ready to start looking at that continuum yet when we think about how raw America is right now?
1: I, I sure hope so. I do think that people have to understand that this is going to be a lifelong work like racism it's 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 not like it it just propped up 10 years ago and now we can fix it like we're talking about decades centuries of oppression and anti-blackness in our in our culture and in our country and i think someone on twitter described it perfectly and they said that what we're seeing right now is like an acute on chronic issue so like acutely America is raw. Acutely, we're seeing all of these things play out, but we can't just address the acute and not expect to do the work to fix the chronic issue. And I think my hope is that we we understand that we need to make change now, but that's gonna have to be an ongoing process. And I don't think that we're gonna be truly prepared to do that until we have a true reckoning with the historical wrongs that have been committed against black people in our country
0: when you were speaking earlier you spoke about the the two pandemics right the acute on chronic maybe in this analogy the acute being covid-19 and the chronic being systemic racism and how those two have overlapped and accelerated one another when we go back a little bit and think about february march april of this year did you have a sense of concern seeing the same zip code data that that i was seeing in cities across the United States, that it was disproportionately affecting the black community, that it was disproportionately affecting the Latino community. Were you having concerns at that time that this is the, this is the tinderbox for something to happen?
1: 100%. I think the first glimpse of it that I got is when Harvard said, OK, all the students, you have to move out by Sunday and how that had propped up these conversations about equity and, and financial opportunity, because not everybody was able to just say, OK, like I'm going to move my things and move back home. They didn't have that level of privilege. And then in addition to that, the medical school came out with a similar announcement and they did a great job making ensure the students were accommodated and I think that they, they did really well with that. But it was interesting because as I spoke with the custodial staff and I spoke with the security guards at our on-campus housing, they really didn't understand what was going on. As we were moving out and we were rushing to pack our things into boxes, they were unaware of how serious COVID-19 was. And a lot of these individuals were not English speaking. So when we think about all of the different alerts that were, how, if, if that isn't accessible, then you really are sitting in the middle of a pandemic. You're working, you you're putting yourself at risk, and you're cleaning, and you're doing all these things, but you're not aware of the fact that you might be bringing home a deadly virus to your family that might have your great grandmother, your grandmother, and, and so many other folks, just because of um, how folks have to live, you know, intergenerationally because of how our society is set up. I, it's it's really unfortunate, and and I knew that that was going to be an issue. And speaking from my perspective. I have family members who are essential workers. And, you know, I wrote a piece about how my grandfather, who's 67 years old, he's a truck driver. And as people and and politicians were coming out with these stay at home orders and social distancing, I was thinking there's no way that my grandfather's gonna be able to do that because he hasn't even been able to retire because he's been having to work to make sure that he can make ends meet and he wasn't even being given the adequate education and protection. And I have my my, my friend who's a leader in the, the Native American community. Um, and he was talking to me about how he already kind of predicted what was gonna happen with the Navajo Nation and how they didn't have access to clean water and, and all of these other disparities that were just coming up because of a lack of basic resources, a lack of access to those basic resources. So it was something that I I felt in my in my bones and I and I felt this level of privilege as a medical student how people were doing so much to accommodate us and to educate us. But what about the other individuals who are gonna be the essential workers who are going to keep our society running.
0: If we stay in the place of the disparities related to COVID-19, do, do you think we are picking up those groups? Do you think we are doing the right work over these past few months? Not to say that we're anywhere close to done in any respect, because the pandemic is not done. It's just starting. But focusing more on, on that part of it, that, that juxtaposition that you provided of of uh, you Understanding what was happening and the medical school supporting you and you're getting ready to go and the staff that are there not sharing that same understanding, even though you got the same organizational emblem on your jackets. Do you feel like that might be different or is it hard to tell because you you all had you all had to leave the campus that they that everyone had to go home?
1: Yeah, honestly, honestly, it is hard to tell, Mark, because yeah. part of me is like, you know, right now we're like pro-essential workers. We're, we're, we're having art being made with, with folks who are uh, mail carriers and those who are cashiers and we're celebrating them. But it's like, of course, we're going to celebrate them when we need them to keep our society going? Like, who's going to check us out at the grocery store? Who's going to deliver our mail? Who's going to, you know, remove our waste from our streets? And and I think that it's important for us to think about what that means and to make sure that this celebration of essential workers isn't just out of convenience to continue our lifestyles as is. Um, and I think that the true measure of that will come after everything calms down, after the dust settles, do we still, are we still going to value these individuals and are we still going to walk it like we've been talking it
0: that brings us back again to the other issue that we're dealing with right it's the protests and the overt displays of frustration and anger over systemic racism and police brutality and the death of george floyd and so many others when you say the dust settles That's one of the things that's giving me in some ways a a significant piece of anxiety because the dust is going to settle in some way, right? When we we just look at how the news cycle moves and we look at how narrative changes, this feels different though. This feels like one of those where we want to keep stirring the dust up as it naturally will try to settle. We want to keep stirring it up because what we have Uh, what we are seeing are, are, are huge chasms that we have a responsibility to fill. And I liked what you said that this is lifetime work. That's something that I'm coming to grips with too. I'm in the middle of my career. I'm raising a young son. I live in my hometown. This is going to be the work of the rest of my life. How do we keep that dust up?
1: Mm -hmm. I mean, that is such, such a well-put point and i think part of it is not letting people get comfortable kind of like what's happening right now with like today i I've, I've seen so many photos of health professionals in white coats kneeling and yeah. i think it's easy to look at that and say okay you know we've checked the box the dust is now settled we've recognized that police brutality is bad that racism is bad and we need to do better. but i think that not allowing the dust settles settle is, is asking the question. Oh, so you've kneeled, but now oh, let's look at the number of black folks in leadership at our institutions. When we have events, are we buying food from local organizations, um, from black owned restaurants? Um, are we making sure that we protect black medical students when they're on the wards, protecting them from how racism is ingrained in our in our own institution, and I think that making sure that we speak truth to power and in holding those in power, we got to keep their feet at the fire. We can't we can't just let the dust settle, as you said. We have to make sure that we keep on pushing people to do better. Because once we stop pushing, then. It's that's that's going to be the end of it, and I and I don't I don't think the true progress is ever made by those in power or those who benefit from a current structure relinquishing their privilege. You have to you have to fight for it. You have to push them to give that up.
0: What will be the value of? Another effort that I've learned of from you and from others over my time participating in MedTwitter and learning a great deal, one of the concepts is is the book that I know is getting a lot of attention, How to Be an Anti-Racist. If we're going to approach it from poking our leaders and prompting them and holding their feet to the fire, as you say it, is there value and necessity in also on the other side of the spectrum, just us at the ground level on that day-to-day basis, taking on board the idea of anti-racism, learning those skills, and then having the courage to implement them in the moment?
1: Oh, yes, 100%. I think that you need to have that anti-racist lens to really understand the value of Holding those in power, holding their feet to the fire. It's it's like it's all interconnected because we we have various different levels of racism. You have the structural racism, the ins- institutional racism. You have the interpersonal racism, um, and then there's also the intrapersonal racism that Black people themselves um, or ourselves we have to deal with, right? Because it starts to become internalized because you're you're constantly being told that your body or your your personhood and your existence doesn't matter. So I think that by people doing the work, it'll allow them to understand why the movement is that much more important. And it'll make sure that they don't perpetuate harm in their in their everyday interactions and and what they do on a day to day basis.
0: So then in this place of rawness, what are you seeing in terms of enthusiasm to keep this moving In that lifetime mindset, in that longitudinal work mindset. Do you, do you see that that is what's happening or do you feel like there's recruiting or convincing to be done?
1: I feel like it's it's a little early to tell, honestly, um, yeah. because I think right now racism is the national conversation. People like right now, if you don't post something on social media, then you're kind of like the odd one out, and I think that's the first time that that's been the case pretty much ever. I think before if we were to have this conversation, and especially in spaces of academic medicine, five years ago, people would be like, oh my gosh, you're so radical. What are you talking about? What are you doing? Um, so I think that that in it- a itself is a, is a good sign. But I still think that people are in this space where they think that by doing one anti-racism training at the beginning of an orientation or for onboarding, or if, if we just have those who interact with students do anti-racism training, then we're going to be okay. I still think that people are, are not quite committed to doing the work longitudinally. And for me, I think what that would look like is how do we include Making sure that professors are engaging in anti-racist practices or educators in general um, when when they go up for tenure or when they're getting evaluated uh, for coursework and and things of that sort. Like, how do we make that a part of the institutionalized process, anti-racism and and, and fighting against anti blackness. And I just don't know if we're at that place yet because I think that people are passionate about it. They want to stand against it. But I still think that they're in this place of like, all right, y'all, we check the box. We're good. And, And that cannot be the case.
0: I agree with you. And, you know, I'll I'll make myself accountable here. I want to know the answer. Just, you know, I'm a medical student at heart. I want to I know the answer and I want to get credit for it. And this right. is going to be something where we, it's the actions that are going to tell and it's, we're just starting. And I think that for me, that's going to be something where as a physician and as a leader and as a father and as a husband and as a friend, that it will be down the road where I can look back and say, okay, these are the places where I had opportunities and I did act in the manner consistent with what I'm trying to accomplish. And these are the places that I didn't. And you know what? I have to own that there's probably going to be both. Um, I'm a mm-hmm. perfectionist by nature and I'm not going to be perfect, but it, it's the it's the effort to start that I think right. is where it feels kind of like where we are right now, but we're going to make sure that we continue to help one another along and acknowledge that it's going to be at varying speeds, varying degrees of enthusiasm and varying degrees of success.
1: Exactly. Like, I I think I've heard so many people say, I don't even know where to start. You know, like they're like, these are literally associate professors, like people who've lived their entire lives unaware of how they've been complicit in racism their entire lives and they're like I don't know where to start and it's like well first you gotta start looking within and and start thinking about how you've been complicit in racism like how 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 many times have there been opportunities to step up and, and and speak out against something that wasn't wrong or that that was wrong or the fact that there wasn't adequate representation in, in your material that you were using for your course? I mean, there's so many little things that folks can start doing. And I think that it's easy to get overwhelmed and say, oh, I mean, there's just, there's just, there's just too much. And and then you go into this comfort space of, well, I know I'm not, I know I'm not racist. You know, I have black friends. I voted for Obama. I'm a good person. And that space is a dangerous one because that's when you start doing the, the harm to the black community with, without doing, doing that internal work. And, and it's so important to to try. It's important to try and to realize like, you know, like you, exactly what you said, like, I'm not going to be perfect, but I'm going to do the work no matter how, uncomfortable it is. And I think that once you start feeling comfortable as an anti-racist advocate, then that means that you're not doing the work. You should always feel like you have to do more. And and I think that that's, that's such a key component to it.
0: We started off asking what are you seeing? And I like that we're still getting your vision of where we are and it's It's unsparing and I'm appreciative that you are able to share it in that unsparing way because that's the only thing that's going to be the real rocket fuel. So I want to ask you to kind of give us your vision of something that has been on my mind a great deal. If we look inside the hospital, if we look inside our own community, right, I've been in this for a long time. You are in the midst of the journey as well. It feels like we're going to bump into and we're going to feel fear, anxiety, pushback from long established hierarchies within the profession of medicine and i just want to start really strategically really high level does the does the word hierarchy does that and all that that entails does that sound like one of the barriers am, am i seeing it right that these these baked in hierarchies that we created and we have to take ownership of within the profession of medicine that those are barriers that are right in front of us
1: one hundred percent, especially if we look at like, personally, I'm a I'm coming out of my first year going to be a second year soon. And I feel like I've been pretty protected. Right. Like I go to class, I see problematic things on a slide. I report it or I say something about how we can make it better. And then and then we go from there. But I think students who are on their clinical rotations, Black students who are on their clinical rotations they feel it the hardest because that's when you're entering this space where you aren't around your community as much, and on top of that, there's only what two percent, maybe three on a good day, black professors. Um, who are associate professors in, in academic medicine. So it's not like you, you're you around people that look like you or understand your experience. Um, and then on top of that, we can't put it, put the all the responsibility on those professors to support these black students. So you enter, you're kind of just like isolated and you're lonely. And then on top of that, because of the cultural differences and because of the socioeconomic differences, if you're shadowing in, in surgery, or if you're shadowing in OBGYN or you're, you're You're on your rotations there and they're having a conversation about, I don't know, golfing or something that they watched on TV and you're unable to engage or they kind of make you feel invisible in those moments because you're unable to. That can affect your evaluation because it's been it's been shown that that people will evaluate those who identify with them more closely better. And I think that that's really a disadvantage for Black students. And I also think when Black students might see racism playing out on the wards, they aren't incentivized to say anything because all it's going to do is potentially harm them. And if it, it, it's kind of like it goes against the whole reason why the Black student wants to be there. They want to be there so they can advocate for these patients. So it's kind of like, do I say something now Or would that be putting the opportunity for me to serve these patients in the future in jeopardy? So I think that those are really major issues with the hierarchy because, you know, just the medical student is like the lowest on the totem pole. And then if you put systemic oppression and this role and this identity that we've been given in in our society in America, it just makes it that much worse.
0: You're taking me back to when I was a medical student and when I was a resident and uh, it's it's hard work to do that retrospective thinking, um, and it's gonna it's just it's part of the reckoning that we're all in the midst of. I think I, I would just also suggest, having gone through and done my medical school, my residency, and all of that, one of the hierarchies that's baked into our profession that makes this stuff way worse is the hierarchy of medical student, resident, fellow, attending we we are hamstringing ourselves by infantilizing those or implying employing this chain of command perspective where you sort of reach this weird apex and being someone who is now technically on the side of the apex it's stupid (laughs) it's totally meaningless it's a contrivance and it's dumb uh There are so many things that we need our medical students to be teaching and elevating and promoting and helping us to build and engage around because we are generations behind. That hierarchical view to me feels is is so frustrating. And. I think that we just need to move those things. That's like low hanging fruit. Like if we were able to get that out of the way, we're able mm-hmm. to look at each other entirely differently. Does that sound naive, though, when I say it like that?
1: I mean, I well, first off, thank you for recognizing that. and And I think that's that's definitely a part of it. Like, I think that that would be an initiating step. But then within that hierarchy, we have to recognize that there are like these many hierarchies within that. And then even the many hierarchies, there's even more, there's just so many layers to it. And I think that getting rid of that hierarchy would benefit everyone. But then after that, we have to look at those, those minute ways that racism can creep up on us and have major effects.
0: That's helpful. That's really helpful. And then I think... I'm curious, so what is your sense of the appetite of our institutions to do that? Because that is opening the educational curricular backpack and dumping it out on the ground and putting it back together again while we're trying to also learn to do remote learning. That's not to say that we shouldn't do it, but what is the appetite from your perspective to start that work?
1: Honestly, I I don't know if it's there. I don't know if it's there because to my point earlier, I I was saying that, you know, when when folks benefit from a hierarchy, when they get to reap the benefits of of the system that we've created, they're not going to openly say, okay, like, let's just do away with it. But then again, I was really surprised this year when USLME came out and said, okay, we're going to make step one pass fail. And like, that was a, a huge thing that, people were like having conversations about. So I think that the change is possible, but exactly what you said is the appetite there for it. And I, and I think that it's so easy for us to, you know, we don't have time or, you know, our physicians are overworked and that can not be a priority right now, but we, we have to make it a priority. So I really hope that the appetite is there, but I haven't seen any genuine displays of that so far.
0: I think that, You just also pressed on the, the, the buttons for our profession that will be barriers as well. We are otherwise very busy. We are doing other work. We are going to have to get really good, really good fast at prioritizing. And we are good at it. That's one of the things you learn when you're a medical student and a resident and you're responsible for a cohort of patients and it's 11 o'clock at night and you've got an admission to do and there's somebody on the floor that needs attention and you've got to do, you've got a lot of things to do. You have to learn to prioritize. It feels like we are in a moment Where the profession of medicine has to come to grips with itself and prioritize. And some things are going to slide down from the lofty perch that they've been on and other things must be elevated.
1: Exactly. And I think the unfortunate thing is that a lot of times priority is follow the money and <laughs> there's not really, I, I i don't know, like this is, this is something that really comes from like our moral responsibility as healers. Like we have to say this matters to us, despite the fact that there's not a fancy grant that we have to bring in someone to, to do anti- anti-racist anti training every so couple of months, or we need to make sure that we bring in a professional to talk about how we're going to revamp our evaluation system. Like these are things that aren't necessarily going to be incentivized financially. And I think that is something that folks have to grapple with. And I think hospitals are businesses. They have to make a profit. And I think that that's where the conversation might get challenging.
0: That's extraordinarily perceptive. You're a hundred percent correct. No organization in the United States right now has any kind of money to invest in having speakerships and academies and things. We've all seen the graphs of healthcare dollars that have changed over the course of the pandemic. So that money's gone, but the energy must still be there. And as I'm thinking through what you just said, it feels like you could well be one of those essential people that, given the platforms that you have and your extraordinary, extraordinary ability to communicate, would be someone who would be able to do that. Has that occurred to you, and is that something that would be of interest?
1: Yeah, I mean I I honestly never never thought about it until you you just kind of planted that in my mind I think in general this year I've just been you know trying to get through my classes right. trying to learn how the kids know. <laughs> first
0: year of medical school is supposed like, to be enough
1: right <laughs> right exactly <laughs> um but I think that that as I've gone through this year I've just noticed opportunities for us to do better yeah. like I I believe in us. I believe in us so much. And I think that what we do is so important. And I think that our role in society is so important, but I think that we can do so much better. And if people believe that my voice and, and what I can bring to the conversation is something that would be a value to making sure that we can do better for ourselves, for our institutions, for our patients, for our community, I'm 100% open to doing that.
0: I would say the, push back to my own idea, which I always like to do because my friends will tease me that that I always have these half-baked ideas, is that (laughs) it it can't just be Lash Nolan. It's got to be an army. It's got to be so many of us from all different places saying, I am learning this as fast as I can. I'm also executing on it as fast as I can. And just like the you know, the, the dictum when you're learning how to do a procedure in the ICU, see one, do one, teach one, we're going to need to rapidly deploy that in our profession. Because for us to expect you to carry that much water while you're learning how to be a physician, which is extraordinarily difficult in and of itself, that's a fallacy. Right. That's not correct. It needs to be... Me. It needs to be the attendings. It needs to be the leaders too, who don't know how to do it yet, but are learning. And just like I learned how to put in central lines and intubate, and it was super scary, and I was afraid I was going to make mistakes, and I was afraid I could hurt somebody. And all of that, that central dogma applies here.
1: Exactly. Yep. You hit the nail on the head. And I think the other thing is, you know, I'm I'm doing this work and it's it's more visible because I use Twitter and I use social media, but there are students who have been doing this for years. Like I talked to folks who graduated from my medical school 20, 30 years ago and they're like, "We were pushing for the same thing." And I think that medical students have been doing this work in silence without getting compensation, without getting recognition, and I think that for example, if, if Lash Nolan is supposed to lead a workshop or they're supposed to, or if I'm supposed to, to do this work, it's important to compensate medical students for their time, um, whether that's with um, course credit or financially or scholarships. We need to be paid for this labor and this work that we're doing because it is taking away from our academics and, and we're happy to do that work and it's important to us. But it's important also that these institutions put their 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 money where their mouth is because you wouldn't bring in someone who doesn't know how to adequately treat a certain disease to teach medical students something. So we shouldn't do the same with anti-racism training.
0: I am so happy to know, that you carry that sense of self-worth and that your colleagues carry the same because our profession has a tendency to drum that out of all of us. And every every physician that goes forward will has felt like they have done valuable work on a longitudinal basis in any, in any sort of different category and they have not been compensated fairly, not that it makes them wealthy, but that it's – that it's equal to the measure of the effort. And I, uh, I appreciate And I totally support that if you're going to be asked to do this, that it be part of your training, that it be, it be that you be made whole because otherwise we're going to burn out your, you and a whole generation of medical students. And that's, that's, that's not acceptable. We can't have that.
1: Exactly. 100%.
0: So it's, Early June of 2020, and you know, I think all of us move through each day, checking Twitter, checking in with our friends, thinking about all of these th- things. Do you give yourself space to think about what it's going to be rel- what it's going to be like to return to medical school in whatever shape that takes, whether it's virtual, whether it's in person, or some sort of hybrid? Have you been able to think at all about what it's going to be like to start your second year of medical school?
1: Honestly. i haven't really given that much thought to to how it's going to be when we when we get back i think there's a lot of anxiety and fear amongst my classmates just because uh we're like accelerated at harvard medical school so we actually are going to be starting on the wards in like september and there's We've been able to do like televisits and and things like that, and they've done a really great job of maintaining our medical education. But after not being in the hospital setting for so long, um, it is a little nerve wracking to to go like right into it. But um, it's a really interesting time to be learning medicine. And I, I feel very honored and, and grateful to, to be able to do this work, but, but I haven't really given a lot of thought to what that transition might be like, and it's so weird. I've almost gotten used to this quarantine life. It's kind of like, this is <laughs> normal, so in zoom calls, like I, I, I haven't really completely wrapped my head around what, what life post COVID-19 will be like.
0: Yeah. It it, it will be interesting for sure, whatever, in whatever shape that it takes. We (laughs) We did reference earlier that you speak on multiple platforms and that you have written extensively and shared extensively. How do people find the work that you have done and that you continue to do?
1: Yeah. So if, if folks want to follow the work that I'm doing and, and that I've done in the past, please follow me on Twitter. It's just at Lash Nolan. And I also have a personal website, LashiraNolan.com. And, and that has all of um, the different podcasts that I've done, like the one that uh, Mark and I are engaging in now, and also all the writing that I've been involved in as well, so I post everything on there, and um, and yeah, I think that that'd be a great place for folks to go.
0: Your your Twitter feed is remarkable, and on your website, the archive of your writings is is noteworthy. Your Teen Vogue article from May is a remarkable thing about being the first Black woman class president at Harvard, but the theme was who comes after me. It's a it's a remarkable article, and I think. Your role in leadership... Is we're going to leave, we're going to leave with one of my favorite things, right? We can never cover everything in one podcast episode, but the leadership arc that you're on now and what it might lead to is just incredible. And I think when you go back, you're also going to go, not just as a second year medical student, but continuing in this role of a leader of your medical school class. And I would go so far as to say a national leader of medical students, which is an extraordinary place to be. And so I say all that so people will continue to follow you and see this arc develop.
1: Well, thank you, Mark. That, that means a lot. That means a lot. And um, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to learning more about medicine and, and the kidney. I keep bringing up the kidney because it's like one of the most confusing organs. <laughs> 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 Clearly, that's uh, where my studying has gone, right?
0: <laughs> absolutely. And, you, um, you, we're just, right there with you. This,
1: yeah, yeah, I love it. I love it, and and I appreciate you for for making the space and and for bringing diverse voices to this podcast, and and just really grateful for the conversation that we had today.
0: Uh, just an absolute delight to have you on. I appreciate you making some time, and and sharing with us so we can all continue to be accountable and learn together. And this is very very special. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you again to Lash Nolan for joining us. Definitely check her out on Twitter at Lash Nolan. And definitely check out her website, LashiraNolan.com. There are links in the show notes. Thank you to Lori Bedke and Creighton University for sponsoring this episode of Explore the Space. You can learn more about Creighton's Executive MBA and Executive Fellowship programs at www.creighton.edu backslash C-H-E-E. Thank you so much for listening. Glad to have had you Join us for this episode of Explore the Space. Definitely check us out, www.explorethespaceshow.com. Please check us out wherever you like to download your podcasts and please subscribe to the show. Please leave us a rating and a review. You can find me on Twitter at ets show, Instagram at Explore the Space Show. Feel free to email me as well, mark at show.com. We will see you soon. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space.